Layovers, your weekly dose of aviation innovation. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard from the flight deck. This is Paul Pavelevichu. Hello, everybody. This is Alex Hunter. We'll be your pilots for this show about the news, the startups, and the technologies defining the modern air travel experience. Our flight time today, 56 minutes. We expect it on time arrival. Coming up on this flight, the story behind Virgin America's death, why Alaska bought it, why JetBlue didn't, why Alaska might regret it, why it made sense for investors to sell, how JetBlue goes after Virgin's passengers, how we all lose out, and what will happen to the brand. A bit of hope for the 747 dire state of the TSA, the confidence behind Everett's new booking system, a pillow that calls itself smart, KLM is boarding the new Facebook Messenger, warheads board an Air Serbia plane and a Tesla and a 737 race each other. As we reach our cruising altitude, I'm going to turn off the fast signal sign for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and let's turn on those noise-canceling headphones. Flight 38 to Boston. Hi, Alex. Hi, Boston. I'm excited to talk about Boston. That's a fun airport. Oh, is it? Really? Well, fun, <laughs> I wasn't fun, sure you liked fun it. Fun in, in inverted commas. I think uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. I was just there, so I feel uh, reasonably qualified to talk about it. You just actually released your attaché video show of the travel guide about Boston. We uh, did. It's a great city. Boston is fantastic. And we were there in, in February, which can be the cruelest of months in Boston. But we lucked out with some very balmy for Boston weather. And this is why actually... Uh, I wasn't sure you liked that airport because let's say, and I encourage people to watch that travel guide, let's say you're not seemingly overly enthusiastic about Boston Airport. But anyway, we'll see that at the end of the show. But first, the big news, the news that everybody's been talking about, that has been rumbling all over the internet, over social media, over the web, over the media. The thing that really changed our hearts that actually made you, Alex, completely change is the fact that the 747 has new orders. <laughs> Oh, that's that's cruel. That's cruel. Uh, this, no, is no, the, don't this has been the good news. The good news in an otherwise not brilliant week, no. news-wise. No, I know. We'll go back to the 747. I had to do that because I'm so happy about that. So, yeah, the big news was obviously just after we ended recording the show last time, Virgin America has been acquired. They have been acquired by Alaska. So, so how do you feel about that? You know, I've gone through the seven stages of grieving. I believe that's what they are. I think I'm through the other side, but uh, this story is, is definitely not done. I was devastated when I heard, to be entirely yeah, honest. Yeah. I was very, very upset, mainly because, you know, it, it means the end of Virgin America, as at least as we know it today. I don't think it's as cut and dry as we initially thought, but... Mm -hmm. uh, for all intents and purposes, Virgin America is dead. And there was a lot of us who put a, a lot of time and energy into the creation of that airline and that experience. And so I think we kind of have every right to feel sad, just plain sad about it. You know, setting aside all of the, the passenger stuff, you know, that, the passengers never benefit from consolidation, no matter what anybody says, that's quantifiable. But yeah, so it's it's been sad. I was angry. I was, you know, I trying to convince myself that no, no, Alaska will keep the brand or something. But no, I, you know, I think well, I've I, made I, peace with it. Yeah, because I mean, for those now, who let me just you. throw my chair through the window first. <laughs> <laughs> for, those, for those who follow you on Twitter, clearly, when you woke up that day, I already had the news because I was still in Europe. You were in the West Coast of the U.S. 
very quickly, it was clear that you were very sad, almost angry, which I understand because you've been part of the founding team and that's something that is emotional for you. We'll get to the entire passenger experience later. Uh, and for those who are listening to us, thank you. And we'll dedicate the better half of this podcast to, to talk about Virgin. So Alaska is not probably the company that is the most exciting. It's a very conservative company. The other bidder was obviously JetBlue. But in the two cases, as we had spoken on the last show, that would have meant the death of Virgin America. Very interestingly so, because of what you just said, the, the first commentaries, there were so many people, and I think they were in denial, and you were not, that like, oh, but of course the brand will survive, they'll keep it, whatever. And you very, very early and bluntly said, you know, Virgin America is dead. Yeah, I, I was convinced of that from the beginning, not just because Alaska had made that quite clear in the press release that had come out that they would stick with their quote-unquote newly refreshed brand. Also, I just didn't see how it was going to mesh. But, you know, looking at the deal, so just the, the headline numbers were $2.6 billion rising to $4 billion to include debt and leases and all of the other stuff that goes on with this. That's 47% above the current market value of Virgin America, which raised a lot of eyebrows. Yeah. And I think as we've picked this deal apart to the nth, really, there's still a lot of questions about this deal and why they did it. And perhaps now they are slightly regretting it. I don't think that Alaska could have predicted, perhaps they should have predicted, but they didn't predict the massive backlash that they received from loyal Virgin America customers, but also just the general traveling public who thought, great, another consolidation means we're going to get screwed. But also the very public, you know, shots being fired by Richard Branson about this, who publicly said he didn't want this deal to happen and weirdly said he didn't want it to go to, to JetBlue even more, which I'm, I'm still not 100% sure. I think that that's some some legacy bitterness there. But to make things clear for those who don't know, Richard Branson has no say. No, he has no controlling. He, he has a stake yeah. or had a stake in Virgin America, but no a controlling stake in it. So even if he didn't want to see this deal happen, there was nothing he could have done about it. But in both cases, whomever airline would have ended buying Virgin America, they would have gotten that backlash because it was such yes. a unique airline in the US market, such, you know, a different passenger experience that the disappearance of of it would have actually always created a backlash. The fact that Alaska might not have expected it as much is probably true, you're right. But in the end, it would have happened. The thing I would say about Branson, I understand why he's unhappy, as you are, Alex. At the same time, is it not just, you know, he can only be the good guy because he will say, oh, you know what? I was against it, but I have no say. I don't want Alaska to get it. So basically, people will be disappointed because the consolidation happened, but he still goes out as the hero in the end. So was yeah. it not too easy for him just to say that? Well, yes and, and no. I think some of the stuff he said, yeah, you would expect it to do. But there's two things that, that are I think are important to note here. One is that the loss of the Virgin America brand is a huge strategic setback for the Virgin group. There is no one flying the Virgin flag in the United States anymore. I mean, yeah, Virgin Mobile, but no one really uses that anymore. The megastores have been dead for years. There is no strong Virgin presence in the United States. Virgin America was that, and now it's gone or going. And so I think that's a, you know, they've realized that and that that's sort of worrying them as it should. And the second thing is, yes, I, I, I think he would have said all of those or some of those things no matter what. But what really surprised me was how aggressive he was in the press True. with these thinly veiled threats of if you don't keep the Virgin America brand, and this was in an interview he did with Condé Nast Traveler, 
if you don't keep the Virgin America brand or rebrand your entire operation, <laughs> then I am just going to go and start Virgin America version two, yeah. which really caught me by surprise because starting Virgin America was not an easy process. So, which makes me slightly skeptical until I heard some, some theories about how he could actually do it. So that makes me think that he's reasonably serious. Now, the quandary that this puts Alaska in is that as a licensee of, of the Virgin brand, you have to pay royalties to the Virgin group, yeah, exactly. which now is 0.7% of annual revenue. For Virgin, a combined Virgin and Alaska carrier, that's $49 million a year. That's not a small amount of cheap, money. Yeah. So you can see why Alaska would be like, yeah, we're not doing that. That That's a lot of money. We, we, we're, we can be fine on our own. We'll figure out ways to integrate the brand. But I don't think that they anticipated, like I said, the outpouring of support and love for Virgin America, nor Richard Branson throwing his weight around for better or worse uh, on this. So you, you say you imply that they were maybe regretting it. So do you really think they are regretting uh, doing this acquisition now? I think they might be going, gosh, have we bitten off a little bit more than we can chew? I'd like to know how much debt they've taken on to make this deal happen. I mean, it's $4 billion to acquire the airline, but then it's going to be at least another 25 to 50% more to actually integrate the two carriers. Remember, they use different types of airplane, different reservation right. systems. They're in different airports. There's, there's so much cost associated with, and not to mention the merging of two popular loyalty programs and very different loyalty programs. So I think that they felt like if they didn't offer this price per share, then JetBlue would have come in a dollar under and stolen it. And a Virgin America JetBlue tie-up would have been a formidable uh thorn in, in in Alaska's side, not just because you would have had, you know, JetBlue with a, you know, a, a West Coast fortress now. And if JetBlue hadn't done it, there was always theories that Delta was going to do it. And Delta and Alaska have been battling each other. Remember, they used to be, you know, lovers, Delta and, and Alaska, <laughs> and now they are quarreling like exes tend to do. So I think Alaska's hand was forced slightly. They paid way above market. And that's kind of where the analysis is focused recently. But I certainly don't think that we've heard the end of the story. In my mind and in my heart, it's done. Yeah. And the Virgin America, you know, once all of the clamor has died down and everybody gets on with their lives, the Virgin America brand will ebb away. They may keep some nuances of it. They keep saying, we're going to learn from the Virgin America brand. We're going to learn from yeah, the Mar Virgin said, America yeah, brand. Yeah. But that's what you do when you buy a company. You take the best bits of it. You could feel that Alaska was in muddy waters because it kept changing their stance about we will keep the brand, we will not keep the brand, keep the brand, because they had all this backlash coming. So now basically what will happen is probably we'll keep the brand for a little bit. The booking systems will be integrated very quickly. The loyalty model system will be integrated very quickly. But the brand itself will survive for a few months. It's undetermined how much it will survive for. There's been even a lawsuit. I think, I think you found that. I mean, I'm not sure if it's actually really serious, if it's just, you know, some vultures going around. Uh, the fact that its deal is a bit muddy, so they, they went and they attacked the deal mechanism. Do you think there's any value to that lawsuit? No, or? apparently these, these, these are happen after every big deal, yeah. and there will be a small settlement, and it will get out of, you know, it'll, we won't hear any more of it. I don't think there's any, you know, notion that that this won't go through the regulatory process, despite, and I, you know, I want to remind you guys that four carriers control 83 plus percent of the yep. U.S. domestic capacity, four. Yep. And Alaska isn't one of those. Yep. I mean, that's why you can see this story unfolding of, hang on a minute, the American traveling public really is getting screwed by this. And, and I don't think anyone's going to take it over. And, and, and Virgin America's mission was to try and be different. And now they're going to be consolidated into an airline that is anything but different. And I should say, 
Alaska, from a operational and I guess from a customer service perspective, are good. They are yes, good, they but are, they are sure. not Virgin American. I think for me, it would have been a lot more obvious and probably much easier to swallow if it had been JetBlue because they are both customer-centric airlines with very similar products. And you could see sort of the middle ground between the two of them much more obviously beyond the sort of, oh yeah, they, they fly the same type of airplanes. So, But the JetBlue executive vice president of commercial and planning said that that it would have been nice to have, but it was not worth $2.6 billion. That's what somebody who can't afford it says. <laughs> you know, I am utterly convinced, as is the market, that if Alaska had not pulled the trigger on this deal, JetBlue would have then JetBlue would have done it. And I don't think the Virgin America shareholders would have taken much less than what was already tabled by Alaska. Yeah, um, you're probably right. I see your point. It's true that probably JetBlue's philosophy, for the lack of a better word, is closer to Virgin America. But you might have reacted very similarly because you would have still, I mean, it would have been a guaranteed death of the brand as well. There's no way JetBlue, which is a very well-integrated company, they offer a very solid product that is very um, similar all across the board. I don't think they would have maintained the brand for like as a superior thing. They already have Mint, which is their trunk route brand. Would it have replaced Mint with Virgin America? I highly doubt so. Do you think yeah. it would have been possible? No, I don't, I don't think the only airline that I think might have considered keeping it would be Delta, funnily enough. Yeah, yeah but Delta would have not gone and probably the green light from the uh, antitrust No, and that's the kind of the, the paradox with all of this. I think no matter who acquired it, the brand would have been gone. And that's, I think, the realization, you know, as you said, that, that I, I got quickly and that made me the saddest other than, and I think this is also important to point out, that there are a thousand people in a building in Burlingame that are going to be unemployed in 12 to 18 months. Um, have you have you talked to any of your ex-colleagues who are there or who are maybe not there anymore, what their, their feelings are? That has been the silver lining for me personally in all of this is that all of these people have come out of the woodwork or reconnected and we've all kind of been sharing photos and memories and seeing each other in person and kind of coalescing around this you know it's a little bit like a wake and it, that's been nice and I think you know we've all just sort of you know, there have been petitions put up by the traveling public saying keep the mood lighting on and all of that. For us, it's just been more of a, uh, boy, this is a real shame, but we had fun doing it. And that doesn't take away the sting from the people that are, are going to lose their job yeah. through the consolidation, but it has been a nice silver lining. You know, there there is a small, and I, you know, when I say small, I mean 5% chance that Alaska will keep the Virgin America brand going at least for a while you know, while these Airbus leases continue for into through 2018 and all of that. And there's an even smaller chance that they strike a deal with the Virgin Group that says, if you rebrand the whole organization, fat chance, that's a 90 plus year old brand we're talking about, then, you know, there will give you a much, much reduced rate. So you could see a huge Virgin, well, not even huge, 250 airplane Virgin America brand. The argument for that is Alaska Airlines does not travel well, meaning that it's very geographically specific. It Correct. is completely irrelevant on the East Coast, mainly because they don't really fly there. It's got very little brand penetration. So they're going to have to basically start from scratch on the East Coast, whereas obviously Virgin America's got a very, very strong presence there. If I was them, I would be taking a strong look at this to see if there's a way to find a middle ground or be brave and ditch a 90-year-old brand and adopt it into the Virgin America. But that might be the sentimentalist in me talking. But there's still a possibility. You never know with these I mean, we've seen so many surprises in the past two weeks, so many unexpected turns of events, especially how people reacted that we might see it. 
I don't know if JetBlue is sour over losing the deal or not. They've been talking about Mint a lot since Virgin America is on the verge of disappearance because obviously they want to say, look, you love Virgin America, you love the product they were offering you, our Mint product. It does not only does uh, trunk routes, as I mentioned, it also goes to San Martin, to the Barbados, mm. sort of graded product. So they've been touting this one for the past two weeks all over the web. And also they've been uh, running this campaign, hashtag JetBlue Virgins. <laughs> They're giving away tickets for people to kind of move yeah. away from Virgin America. Very, very sensible. Blue. Very sensible yes, because are. I think of all of the airlines out there, JetBlue is most aligned to the kind of Virgin America ethos and, and frankly, the, the in-flight experience. Mint is a solid product. It's a very, very good Transcon product. And I think this was a, if you didn't do this, JetBlue, then you were fools to take advantage of this opportunity to take disenfranchised Virgin America customers away. Uh, I don't think they're going to see a lot of movement because both Alaska and Virgin America have been very vocal in reassuring their existing passengers that nothing is going to change for at least six months. I would say 12 to 18 months. These yeah, processes probably, yeah. take time. JetBlue don't have a status-based loyalty program, so they can't offer any type of, you know, incentive like that to sort of status match, you know, Virgin America frequent flyers with anything like that. Uh, although I believe they're looking into it. Yeah, I think a lot of these airlines are actually looking into moving into status-based programs. I mean, even in Europe. We'll, we'll see. Probably there's a lot more that we will learn over the next few weeks. It's uh, almost a happy I'm sorry because I'm using the word happy for you, but it was a happy accident that you were and are in California when this happens because you've been able to reconnect with all your ex-colleagues and being on the ground and not far away here in London. I'm sure you're going to still see some of the other guys. And I'm probably sure as well that there's so many stories you cannot reveal on the podcast because it's a public forum. But I hope that they will maintain the brand in a form or another, that the true spirit of Virgin America will transfer. Yeah, I, I do too. And I think there will be a lot of people at Alaska HQ that are losing sleep at the moment trying to figure out a way to structure this deal. And the only other question that's worth talking about is why did this happen in the first place? Yeah, go on. Yeah. Um, and it's a question that, that I've kind of been asked a lot, frankly, for the investors who owned the majority of Virgin America and had bankrolled it from day one. It was the right thing to do it was the right time for the transaction to happen, you know. Operating costs are low because of low oil. The company was profitable. It was public. It's approaching its 10th birthday. Not a lot of debt. Not a, not a huge amount of debt. No assets really to speak of. So the writing was on the wall. I don't think that when this was initially being offered around that they had a, an intention to sell the entire airline. I think oh. it was an opportunity for some of the long-term heavy-duty shareholders and investors to cash out, which is why you had interest from Hainan Airlines. Obviously, Hainan can only own 24.9% yeah, 20, reoccurring of the airline, and they were serious bidders. But I think Alaska and JetBlue and rumored to be Delta could smell an opportunity to kill a pesky competitor, if I want to be cynical for a moment. You know, I, there were a lot of an, sort of reports and analysis that uh, Alaska paid $4 billion to kill a competitor that has bothered them since the <laughs> day they were born, which you could absolutely make that argument. But it was a hefty price tag, hefty price yeah, tag. But just for that, yeah. Any investor in their right mind when presented with this deal on paper would have jumped at it. So I don't look at it and go, you know, why, why, why would you let this happen? From a business perspective, I get it. 
I get it. I think it was not possible, but do you think it would have been possible for Virgin America to keep expanding? No. Yeah, that's what I think too, which is why it was a good time to sell because yeah. think about it, I've reached a threshold in their size. It's difficult to grow an airline, especially when 83% of the market is controlled by four airlines who can throw Correct. marketing capacity, actual capacity at you no matter where you go. And Virgin America have done well to weather the storm to date, but I think some kind of tie-up would have been necessary. I guess I hope that it was going to be one of the ME3 that were going to come in. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, Etsy had of a, a propensity to do this and come in and buy 25% of, of Virgin America for a vastly inflated price, giving them a bunch of money to play with and see where that goes. But that didn't happen. I was really surprised how quickly, and forgive me everybody for this sort of non sequitur rambling I've done for the last 20 minutes, but um, <laughs> I was really surprised how quickly this deal appeared to come together. But I think it didn't actually go that fast given the amount of collateral that Alaska put out to reassure passengers and investors that everything was going to be just fine. This, this isn't the kind of thing that you crank out overnight. So I think the conversations have been going on for a while. But I really don't think that we have heard the end of this story. Yeah, like you said, there's two problems. Is the market is heavily controlled by only four airlines. We had talked, I think it was 10 to 12 episodes ago, I will locate it, about the difference in you know the consolidation of the markets in Europe, in the US, and I think it was Asia, to show that the US, I mean, it goes in cycles. You know, it's always there's a period of heavy consolidation, then you know, either the state steps in or some new player comes in and it actually disrupts the market, more players, and then again, consolidation. It's always in cycles. I don't know if this time we'll see some public entity stepping in or we'll see some new player, a Virgin America 2.0 coming into the market. The second problem is, and I understand why they do it, is these foreign ownership rules that prevent anyone else to come shake up the market. I get it why they do it, but like you said, I mean, we said, I think it was the last episode that it would have been fun to see one of the ME3. Maybe the ME3 know that's not the best time to come yeah. and disrupt the market because they already have enough problems with the big four without, though Al Baker would have been able to do that at Qatar. So, you know what? I'm just coming and I'm going to just disrupt you guys. I'm not saying that they should change completely the rules, but maybe instead of 25, go up to, to 40 or something to allow some foreign competition to come in. And when yeah. I say foreign, I say US early line, but to have some cash coming from a foreign entity. Well, what's frustrating, I think, is that the barrier to entry has just got even higher to start oh, yeah. a new airline. I mean, the, the capital requirements to start an airline in the U.S. are already astronomical. And now it's gotten even higher because you have such a concentration of influence and power and capacity in the United States that the only way that it's going to happen is, ironically, further consolidation followed by a rebranding. So like the dream scenario, is Virgin Group and someone like, you know, the Frontier Group, you know, Spirit and Frontier Airlines, who are both not great airlines, come together, you know, and adopt the Virgin America brand or the Virgin brand or some other brand, Singapore Airlines or something that's like different and... and AirAsia. AirAsia, <laughs> slightly, exactly, slightly challenging in their, just in their brand philosophy and run with it and offer something different instead of, I would argue that one of the strongest reasons why American and Delta especially and United to an extent have upped their domestic product so dramatically is Virgin America. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. You look at the Delta and the American transcontinental product, and they are very, very good now. And I would say that the influence and pressure that they experienced because the, a Virgin America existed forced them to do that. And that's why you need challengers constantly pressuring the incumbent to Correct. innovate and improve passenger experience. Maybe I should run for Congress. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
Or maybe you should just create your own airline. We should find some yeah, cash. Yeah, if anyone wants to lend me half a billion dollars, I'm on it. We're running a new airline, wherever that is, in Gambia or New Zealand, wherever. We'd just be happy to create a new airline. Yeah. I do agree that competition, we say that and I say that all the time, and I must tire our listeners with competition. I understand that some people sometimes have something against full competition because, yes, some airlines have to die for others to rise, etc. And their people are going to be fired. But at the end of the day, without competition, the market is going nowhere. And you can see how Asia has risen from a very poor passenger experience to a much better one thanks to competition, open rules, open skies rules, etc. This is why I'm saying that in the US, it's always been in cycles in every industry, by the way, if you look at telecoms or others, you know, there's always been cycles of consolidation and then breaking the competition down. It will happen again. Something will happen. Yeah, uh, I hope some, so. It might take some time. Yeah, and I think Congress and the DOT and the White House are looking at another major airline issue in the US, so, you know, with the whole ME3 thing. <laughs> Any change... When you try and introduce political change like that, the people that will be most negatively affected by it are going to throw as much lobbying power as they can to either kill it or delay it. So I'm not optimistic for anything like that. I would love to see a new entry into the U.S. market to put some pressure on the incumbents be it Virgin or, or somebody else. It would be great to see. I'm not holding my breath. I'm so happy, man, that I got to try Virgin America last January. I didn't know, of course, any of this would happen. So I'm really, really happy that I was able to try once in my life the product that you helped create. Uh, so, well, really, I don't know what to tell you, man. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, it's sad. It's sad. And I, you know, I would strongly encourage any of you, if you haven't experienced Virgin America, do it. I mean, you probably yeah, have six months at, at least to do it. Go and fly. And if you have any questions, hit Hit us up on Twitter or email or Facebook, and we'll try and cover them in the next episode. Because ever since this deal has was announced, I've been bombarded with questions from people I know, from people I don't know. And I'm happy to answer what I can. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I can at least give you my raw, unbiased opinion or completely biased opinion. So we'll, we'll talk about this, of course, in the next episode. And I will also give a huge shout out to basically half of the population of San Francisco that hit me up that day about that news. Yeah. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> all our friends in the tech world were like so unhappy about the potential disappearance of Virgin America that they all, you know, send me emails and send me Facebook messages. Paul, have you seen this? This is a disaster, etc. So I'm not going to mention you all, guys, but thank you. <laughs> if you have questions, like Alex just said, please hit us up and... We'll discuss it in the next episode, the next episodes even, yeah. with pleasure. You, it's a rare opportunity to have someone like Alex, who has been a founding member, so knows the airline inside out. So back to the news I was saying very early in the show. The 747 has 1.5 billion worth of orders. It's actually just four aircrafts. Yeah, but still, it's nice, right? That's great news. Just keeps that line open a little bit longer. Yeah. I know we, we always say that, like every time an order comes through, like, okay, a few, a few more months. But this <laughs> has been a steady trickle. I know that the production rate has gone down and down and down, but this is the plane that refuses to die. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's insane. I was, uh, I did this very big trip from London to Dubai, then Moscow, then Hong Kong back to Dubai and here. Besides Dubai, but in all the other airports, you see 747s, and it's always such a pleasure. You see that I love still in London, but I haven't flown one in three years, for crying out loud. The one thing, and I'll mention it the day we do the airport in Moscow, when you land, there's an aircraft cemetery, and you have abandoned 747s oh on the God. ground. We should go and steal one or something. <laughs> just uh, find the keys and just go away with it. I flew to California on a BA 747, and it was uh. old, and the interior was tired, but there is 
something so wonderfully reassuring about that airplane. Absolutely. And BA so, have a ton of them, and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. They're refurbishing the inside. You might see, you because I know you fly BA quite often, you might see the 747 with a proper modern product inside. You know, it, it's a worthy airplane. They can still fly for at least 10 to 15 years. Oh, so. yeah, absolutely. BA have over 50 of them. So it's really the backbone of their international operations. So that's reassuring. I still have not been on a 748. Me neither. <laughs> I'm interested to even like, I don't even know if I've seen one up close. So I think I've seen one on the ground at Frankfurt Airport because obviously Lufthansa has, from the top of my head, maybe 10. The thing is, I don't fly Lufthansa long haul, which I just should do just to fly the 747. I mean, we have to do it once, right? Or yeah. China Airline, I think is the other. Uh, talking about a 747, a very nice story. Malaysian Airlines has redone the library of one of its 747-400s in a retro library, the way it used to be. And it looks actually very nice. Have you seen the pictures? It looks fantastic. It really does look great. Yeah, and this is uh, like it's, maybe it's... two or three iterations ago. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it looks great. To be honest, when I see that, I almost prefer that branding over what they have currently. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could see like if you took this to an agency and said, can you take this and make it slightly more modern, but not revolutionary, it would look fantastic. I honestly didn't know they were running 747s. We knew that they were ditching their A380s. I don't know for how long it will be in disguise. If anybody knows, just hit us up. I haven't flown Malaysian ever, but that would be a good reason for me to try them. Yeah, it's been a long time since I have either, but that's the only one they have, by the way. They only have one 747. See, I didn't know that. (laughs) And it was uh, was in storage and uh, they reactivated it while they're, they're kind of decommissioning, as you said, the A380s. So Christoph Muller is really a good CEO because if he took that decision, that means he's really <laughs> smart. <laughs> shout outs, many shout outs, but I'm not going to do them today because of lack of time. One to Levy Bloom at I underscore M underscore Blooming. I think he did a marathon of all our episodes. Oh my God, of- <laughs> what a masochist. <laughs> so thank you so much. And he says he's really enjoying this fantastic podcast. So thank you wow. so much. Wow, honestly, I don't know if I could actually do that. Listening to Alex and myself babbling for now, what, 38 episodes? Holy crap. Now you know how my wife feels. <laughs> so I did travels through Emirates from London to Dubai, stayed in Dubai. Then I went to Moscow. Was, uh, it was not an A380 for that round. It was a 777. How is that? How is the Emirates 777 product? Yeah, it's good. I mean, I hadn't flown a 777 by them for, I think, a year and a half. It's still the same. Of course, the business product is different. There's no staggered seat. It's a 232 configuration. It's Honestly, it's, it's a nice product. You know, Emirates, I have to give that to them. They're very consistent across you. You can always know what to expect and it always works. You can feel small differences in the product, meaning that although they always have the same type of product in every airplane, of course, the 777, I just said, has slight differences from the A380. We can feel that they are iterating within the product, but there are small differences. I was lucky to fly on, I think it was, you spotted that, uh, when I was flying back from Hong Kong to Dubai, I was flying an A380 that was only two month hold. Amazing. It was really the one, and we talked about that, I think six, seven episodes ago, where we said they were upgrading with bigger screens in every class. Well, clearly, right? The screens were, I did a tour of the plane, I asked one of the attendants, and I went downstairs, upstairs, etc. You could see that although it's the same seats, or at least it feels like the same interior, there were small differences that made the old difference. And really, the screens in every class are much bigger, so it must be a much better experience. I slept for the old flight, so I cannot really reveal anything special about the product. The interesting bit about Emirates, because I know I always talk about Emirates, and don't want to bore our audience, so I'm going to stop after that. But the interesting 
interesting bit is that when I was booking this route, at first I was not sure I was going to Hong Kong. So I was looking to go back from Moscow to uh, London. And I was doing that on Emirates website. I spotted something new is that until very recently, they would simply route me back through Dubai and then Dubai to London, which clearly doesn't make sense in a pure flight. <laughs> right. But what they do now, and for me, that's a sign of confidence in their product. They offered me other airlines, they offered me a BA flight. Wow. Oh, that's that's interesting. On their own booking service. So I'm on Emirates.com. I'm looking to book a flight from Emirates and they offer me options from other airlines when it makes sense to actually take another airline instead of flying back to Dubai. So at least one leg would have been on Emirates. Two legs. I had to be to Dubai for work anyway. So I would have done London, Dubai, stayed in Dubai, then Dubai, Moscow. And then wanting to go back to London, they were offering me another career. Wow. Would it all have been on the same PNR? I didn't even know they had that kind of agreement with... uh... Me neither. I've tested a few routes. I see that they offer that in many other occasions. I ended up not booking because I ended up having to go to Hong Kong, which then made more sense for me to fly from Moscow back to Dubai and Dubai, Hong Kong, all on Emirates. So I ended up flying everything on Emirates. So I couldn't test if it was the same PNR or not. When I'll do, I'll let you know. I've never seen, let's say, for instance, Air France or, I don't know, Air Canada, Lufthansa, offering you to fly an airline that is not part of their alliance. That never happens. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And as you say, uh, very, very confident. And also very practical. I mean, honestly, it's true that it doesn't make sense in some occasions to route back to Dubai to go to some places. So I think it's very interesting. The other thing is that their booking system has become smarter. So usually, you know, when you book, you say, I want to fly coach, I want to fly business, you want to fly first. I mean, I wish I could fly first, but it is very expensive. Now, especially on these very complex routings, like I did with multiple cities and multiple dates, they put me actually in first on two segments. And they said, you know what, with a first saver, that's going to be less expensive that if you were to buy business because I guess only business flex was still available or something but anyway I didn't have to you know what you and me we keep doing we keep testing all the possibilities the algorithm was smart enough to offer me the cheapest possible price with the route I wanted and I thought it was actually pretty well done kudos for the Emirates for having upgraded their booking system because it really works well I still use Google Flights of course a lot to do a lot of research but I think it's worthy mention that they've done efforts on that front I landed back to London Heathrow. There was a sign that there was no more E-gates at Terminal 3, uh, which is great news because since they never worked, apparently an Heathrow airport has replied to me on Twitter, they are upgrading them. They're always upgrading them. (laughs) Yeah, because I think, honestly, they might have chosen a bad provider because these E-gates never seem to work. And when I compare that to Frankfurt, for instance, Frankfurt is a breeze. I put the passport and not even like half a second later, I'm through the gate. In London, it keeps like looking for my face and, you know, the camera moves in all directions seems to be working. So maybe, I don't know. I hope the next iteration will work. And last, because I'm on e-gates, I just want to say something to my friends at uh, Dubai Airport. You offer e-gates, but it's been three times I'm going to Dubai Airports and every time I try to register my passport to get through e-gates, you say, oh, sorry, the system is down. We cannot do it today. Oh, that's annoying. So do something. Yeah, because then you have to queue forever to get immigration. So guys, please wake up and do something about that. (laughs) Another follow-up to a story we had mentioned is that KLM, we said, was on Messenger. It's actually more than just a customer support. KLM was the first airline to be partnering with Facebook Messenger to offer not only customer support, but now you'll be able to buy flights on Facebook Messenger, to check your flight updates, to talk to a customer representative, to, to know about your error miles, etc. So basically, you can do everything on Facebook Messenger. Wow, that's cool. On the back of the uh, F8 conference that was uh, here in California just a few days ago, I think that they are doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on Messenger 
Messenger as a, not just a communication platform, commerce and, and really everything. So I think we're going to see some some neat stuff coming out of that platform. And not surprising that KLM does it. They're always at the forefront of trying new stuff. So kudos to them. Though, I must admit, I don't know if they're going to use any sort of, I'd say, AI or at least automated response. It must require quite the operations behind the scenes to be able to reply to Alex all the time when he's not happy about something in his flight. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Talking about uh, KLM and Air France, you found, and I want to have your take on it, you found that the CEO of the group is moving on to an executive position at IATA. Yes, this announcement is a strange one because it's been known for ages that Tony Tyler, the current CEO of IATA, was going to be moving on because it's a term limit role. It's not uh, in perpetuity. The Air France KLM chief exec is going to become, from June, the new CEO of IATA. What isn't clear, who will take over? That's a big role, the head of, of Air France at KLM. That's not a small small airline group. So I haven't yet heard anything about who's going to step into that role. Have you? No, I have not. Well, they've said that they've hired a headhunter, which means... Interestingly, I mean, I, I take that as they're not looking internally. But it's also very political because Air France is known to always want to have a French CEO. Probably will have someone coming from Thales, EADS, or one of these French companies uh, active in aviation. I'm not willing to bet on it, but I have a strong feeling that might be the case. And this chap was a was one of those, exactly. That's why I'm not surprised. We'll see. <laughs> we'll follow up on that story. <laughs> you mentioned when we talked about Virgin America that Congress is not always doing the right things. And it was a long shot, but there was an attempt to prevent airlines from further reducing legroom. This has been rejected, so uh, we might actually see a further reducing of legroom. Was it because, that's an open question, do you think, was it because for big airlines, lots of lobbying money, and thus, you know, they don't want that and thus this was rejected. I'm not sure. Ah. I don't think that this is something that the government should get involved with, weirdly. That's a very unusual thing for me to say. But I I don't think that Congress is qualified or competent enough to make this judgment. And even if they did, they'd probably screw it up and we would still lose out. I think that ultimately passengers will vote with their wallets and with their feet and and figure that out. I I don't necessarily buy the whole this is lobbying and everything like that. It's it's in no one's interest to have health issues developing from overcrowded airplanes. Don't get me wrong. I think that they are taking the piss a little bit with how cramped these planes are getting but I don't think that Congress is the right avenue to solve the problem. I'm sure that our friend Kendall from flyerrights.org will be completely in disagreement with you, but uh, I, I see your point. In the US, average legroom went from 35 inches in the 70s closer to 31 today, and the average width of an airline seat from 18 to 16.5. So when you say that passengers will vote with their feet, that is, if they still have feet. <laughs> yeah, and again, just, you know, I think that it's it's getting out of hand how cramped it's getting. I just don't think that Congress is the right avenue to solve this. Asia's airlines are mostly excellent. Europe's are competent. America's are awful. Okay, uh, tell this... me something I don't know. <laughs> uh, shout out to uh, 1843. It's a new magazine by The Economist. It used to be called Intelligent Life. They did uh, an article called Come Fly With Me. They made an interesting chart in there, and I encourage you to look at it. It's going to be in the show notes. They look at the price versus service. As you say, tell us something we don't know, but it was nicely done. Do you Beautifully agree with done. Their findings? Beautifully done. The graph, I think you're 
you're referring to is this price versus service. One right. Yeah, this is such a stunning chart. It's sort of a, an XY chart with expensive and satisfying in the top left, cheap and satisfying top right, cheap, unsatisfying bottom right, expensive, unsatisfying bottom left. And, if, you know, you have at the top of the chart, which is where you want to be, top, top middle, Singapore Airlines, Cathay, ANA, Emirates, KLM, Lufthansa, and at the bottom in huge, big, <laughs> you know, representations, American and United. It doesn't tell us anything that we probably didn't already know, but it quantifies it. And I love info porn like this, and they've done a, a lovely job with it. I mean, it's The Economist, you'd expect them to. And you see that Turkish airline is really the odd one out because yeah. it says, you know, the fact that it's odd one out, it represents exactly what we've been saying about Turkish all along. And that's not a consistent airline. Yeah, extremely sometimes average. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's great, sometimes it completely sucks. Anyway, but it's a nice article. Hello to 1843 Magazine. So happy birthday because they were born very recently. Another story about customers' rights. This time, I found that pretty amazing. So Thomas Cook. Thomas Cook is... How would you define it? It's not a low cost. It's more like a yeah, leisure, like a leisure carrier. That's perfect. Yeah, that's the perfect yeah. word. Just read the title. An airline, so Thomas Cook, owed a customer $680 and its plane almost got impounded. What? <laughs> you know, we've been talking about that in the past. In Europe, you have strict regulations about rights of customers. So as a passenger, if your flight is delayed by more than three hours or five, depending on the rules, there's a lot of rules that force airlines not to mistreat you. They have to pay you a fee. And in that case, what happened, there was one flight from Vienna to the Caribbean, got delayed 22 hours because of mechanical issues. One passenger was promised $680 per these regulations. But of course, she never got that compensation. And which shows that you have to be stubborn, that passengers kept going through the entire process in court, etc., to the point that and it was done through like flight rights. You know, it's a claims company. We talk about these few websites that help you do that process. It went so far that one aircraft would have been impounded if they hadn't replied to the last court order. That's interesting, amazing. right? That's good. <laughs> that shows that, that we're finally making progress. But coming to what you said just earlier, it's a government regulation. See, sometimes it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another instance where the government is involved in the US, because we're back in the US, is the TSA. So you had many stories about the TSA yourself, Alex. It was a funny story on geek.com, which uh, basically shown that the use of public money is sometimes misused by these governmental bodies. You know, when you try to enter a line for the TSA in order not to be profiled, I mean, you are profiled by definition because you're in a security line, but there's a system that says, oh, you, we will check you, we will not check you. You know, it happens everywhere in the world. Although you pass the x-ray, you still pat down and that's a randomized check, right? That randomized, a randomizer is a very easy line of code to do and the TSA paid 1.5 million for that. That's distressing. <laughs> it won't get better. Because the TSA is a mess, they are understaffed, and apparently they will not be able to staff. And this is probably why they try to onboard as many people to pre in order to not hire people. Yeah, so the <laughs> this is hilarious. They rolled out the pre-check program and assumed that based on the adoption of that, that they could reduce the number of screeners they had by 10%. Well, the problem is that people didn't actually sign up for pre-check in the numbers anywhere near what they were hoping they would get. So they've reduced the number of screening staff, but we still have the same amount of people, if not more. I did a day trip to Santa Barbara a couple of days ago, and boy, was I glad to have the pre-check. I mean, the lines at security, both in Oakland and in Burbank, were long enough to piss me off. 
Um, <laughs> there was like three people in line and at pre, and so I could zip through. So I like it, but it hasn't solved, like you said, an already not not good situation. Do you think they would have caught missiles if you had that in your carry-on? Uh, well, they wouldn't in Serbia, apparently. Um, this story is <laughs> crazy. It's, it's from uh, last month, but this is just too good not to talk about. So a box of U.S. combat missiles were found on an Air Serbia passenger flight at Belgrade Airport over the weekend. They were guided armor-piercing missiles armed with explosive warheads. <laughs> on a passenger, not, I mean, they weren't like attached to the plane like they, you know, they was going to go do some sortie. They were cargo, but they were found by a, a sniffer dog. And from what I can understand... There was a, a labeling mishap at the warehouse. So it wasn't Air Serbia's fault at all. Or perhaps they might want to screen their cargo a little bit better. But yeah, a simple wrong label on the wrong box meant that these Hellfire missiles ended up on a passenger airplane. They were supposed to be going to Portland. I have no idea why. <laughs> um <laughs> Just a, an extraordinary mishap that would allow this to happen. Funnily enough, I was asking you this morning, should I fly Air Serbia? And now, of course, when I read that, I'm like, wow, yeah, because not. I'm looking into <laughs> The other thing that we've been discussing to no end is smart luggages, because related to security, to the TSA in particular, you never know, oh, will those luggages get clear or not? You found a new one called Radon. Uh, Radon.com is the website, and you've actually had an interaction with them. So where are you convinced for once to actually get a smart luggage? No, but I was impressed with their reply to a challenge I put to them. We've talked about this in the past. It's come up in, in, in a couple of stories with lithium-ion batteries. They're dangerous. A lot of airlines say you can't put them in your checked luggage. The quality of them varies so, so greatly that they can actually be a, a huge safety hazard. We covered a story a few weeks ago where the wiring was exposed in a smart bag to this lithium-ion battery, and I just thought, this is getting out of hand. So a lot of my friends were talking about Raiden, Radden, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And so I messaged them on Twitter if they had a different approach and said, how are you going to solve this problem, you guys? Like, it's, it's lithium-ion. On lithium ion can't go in in check luggage. It is by definition luggage. What are you going to do? And they replied saying our battery passed the UN 38.3 testing standards, falls well below the 100 watt hour limit, and adheres to IAT packing instructions 966 and 967. This was an almost an instant reply. Perfect. The perfect answer. They have done their job. They have manufactured a high quality product. They've done the research on all of the international levels of compliance they needed to adhere to. Kudos to Raiden, R-A-D-E-N. I won't buy one. It's just not my jam, but I really like these guys. I think that they've got a great attitude and a, a product that I think will appeal to uh, quite a few people. Which is the totally opposite of what happened when you mentioned the wires exposed. There was the Blue Smart, and the, I think it was the CEO. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but one of the execs of the company that basically were all ballistic online when one of the reviewers was actually uh, putting a negative review about the units. And I think this is exactly what you shouldn't do. Alex is not convinced. Here you go. That's the answer they should give. Alex, if one of your friends ends up buying one, I haven't found a friend yet that has bought one and they can tell us on the show, how is it to travel with a freaking smart You know, that's a great point. That's actually a really good point that, you know, we have a lot of friends that travel. I mean, I certainly have friends that travel way more than I I do. And I don't know anybody personally that has one. If you do, let us know. Please, even if you're not my friend, we'll become friends. Let, <laughs> let us know if you have one. Give us your honest feedback on it. I will do my best to, to approach it with uh, neutrality. I just want to know if it's any good and if it's worth it because they are very expensive. 
Last bit about smart stuff that you put in your luggage. I had mentioned the stories of these uh, units you can put in your luggage to know when it's arriving in a luggage belt, etc., etc. This one has a slight difference. I'm still not convinced I would buy one. It's called Smart Unit. I've seen it on Product Hunt. The difference is, is that it uses a cell phone signal, GSM, GPRS, which means you put a device in your luggage, the luggage goes in the hold of your aircraft, hopefully so. But <laughs> if it gets lost or if it gets to another airport, since it's a GSM, you don't have to be close with your phone ah. to actually know where it is. Meaning that your luggage could be in Tokyo for all you know. You could be in Caracas and you would still know that, hey, my luggage is not with me. It's actually in Tokyo. And the service that they offer, then they will help you go to the airline and say, hey, look, I know that you misrouted my luggage. I can actually tell you where it is. So... I would give them kudos for having tried that. I will not buy one, but I think it's worth looking into if you're really scared about losing your luggage. Maybe it's a technology you should look into. I'll put the link in the show notes if you're interested. Smart unit. Another technology that everybody has been actually sending me the link to, and I'm just going to mention Ion because it was the first one at uh, Hi, My Name is Ion. A smart, no, it's not smart, but just a new type of pillow. So do you use a pillow, Alex, when you are in a flight to sleep? No. They're not one of these no, things I, that I've, go around your neck? I've or... used them once or twice before. I hate them. I don't yeah, like I'm, them. Not, I'm not a fan. I, I'm indifferent, actually. This is a joke. Yeah, this I mean... one's a joke, right? This has to be an April Fool's joke. It is an <laughs> April Fool's joke, right? I don't know even how to describe it. It's more than a pillow. It's some kind of teddy bear. No, I'm kidding. But it's something you you can hug. You can it looks like a giant hug. cat toy. It's <laughs> a very good definition. You can place it in front of you. You say, imagine you're in economy. Of course, you don't need a pillow if you're in business or in first class. You open a tray table, you put that pillow on it, and then you can tilt forward and slip on it. Yeah, it's I like, don't know how to better describe it. No, that. I think you're right. It's like a big giant pillow. It's not even a pillow. Let's 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 put that out of the way. It's like a, a backpack shaped <laughs> squidgy thing with a spot for your face. So here I have a legitimate question. What makes this smart? On Kickstarter, on the, their page, they say it will allow you to find your ideal sleeping position. Honestly, I don't sleep like that for crying out loud. What 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 how is it ideal? To have your face in a pillow at the IFE screen in front of you. I honestly don't get it. I, I'm, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say about uh, it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's been funded. So congratulations to them for that. 80, 82,000 euros funded so far. I'm going to start a line of smart projects that are just random things. And then I'm going to add the word smart to them. Here's my smart <laughs> chair. Here's my smart <laughs> coat hanger. <Okay>. What? <laughs> What I will give them is on the Kickstarter page, they've done the sleeping instructions and I find them very funny because they basically use the layout and the design of the safety instruction card you find in all aircrafts. On it, they explain how to use the pillow. It's tongue in cheek, maybe, but it's I found great. that. You know, they've funny. done a brilliant job with with the marketing collateral. Really, really, like one of the best uh, Kickstarter campaigns I've I've ever seen. It's it's very, very well done. Elon Musk, for those who don't know, is the guy who created SpaceX, created Tesla, created like host and host of very innovative companies. He just released uh, a new Tesla. Have you put an order for that new Tesla? No, <laughs> no not yet. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking about it, right? A lot of my uh, my friends have uh, over here, so I think uh, they've got a long time to wait. But it, boy, you know, it's a it's, it looks like a great product. 
Somebody came up with the idea to make a Tesla, so not, of course, the new one because he hasn't been built yet, but uh, the Tesla, which one was it? It was the Model S, which is a very fast model. I've been in a few, and it's true that the acceleration, the feeling of acceleration is amazing in it. The thing is here that they've pitted it against a 737. Who do you think won? I don't know. It depends how long the race was. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the 737. The Boeing has 52,000 pounds of thrust and a top speed Mach of 8.2. So whatever you can do, you will never beat a 737 with a car. But like you write, if it was just a short track, the Tesla would have honestly beaten it. Maybe if they had put a 757, you know, with that kick. Maybe that yeah, that would have, have been a closer been. contest. The best one I ever saw was uh, when I was a kid here, actually here in Livermore, California, where I am right now and grew up. They used to have a great air show and it was a Lockheed Constellation versus a rocket car and just the length of the runway the constellation had a running start but it was very very impressive to watch and it was basically a dead heat it was so cool Qantas is the airline that did that with Tesla since it's a brand collaboration they didn't reveal themselves who was the winner I mean I've heard through the grapevine that the plane was a winner the video doesn't show you the exact moment what it should have shown you because I guess they were not willing to kind of say hey we beat you Tesla because it, the whole thing was done in collaborations let's let's call it a draw uh, for Qantas uh, <laughs> I still believe the 737 beats the Tesla so I don't know if you've ever driven a Tesla at any of the runways at Boston Logan Airport that's our airport this week I said at the top of the show that it doesn't seem to me that you're a huge fan of the airport proof is what you say in your attaché travel show when you seem to be saying basically the only good thing you can think about that airport is not too far of the city. Yeah, that's a that's that's a great thing about Logan is that it's no distance from downtown Boston. It's like three and a bit miles. So you can get there and the and the transport links are very good. There's the blue line, the silver line, which is a, a kind of combo a tram bus train thing water taxis and then just a, a regular taxi what? yeah yeah what did you say what water taxis like <laughs> these like you know regular and on-demand services across the water from from logan to to downtown it's also oh, a wow. great airport for spotting if you're if that's your jam there's a i think it's the sheraton if you're a bostonian please correct me if i'm wrong there's um a block of rooms at, at the Sheraton at, at the airport that overlook the runway. And you didn't stay at that hotel? No, no. We stayed at the Liberty, which is, if you watch the episode, is the old Suffolk County Jail. And it's just oh, a beautiful, wow. beautiful hotel. And they kind of kept the prison motif going on. But you don't feel like you're serving time. Boston Airport could do with some love internally. It all feels a little bit kind of temporary and port cabiny especially the, the bit that JetBlue goes out of. Do you think it hasn't been like really properly, not maintained, that's not the right word, but be, you know, beautified or refurbished in a long time? No, or? yeah, exactly. The problem with Boston in general is that those poor folks, it, it feels like it's constantly under construction. You know, you have big projects like the the Big Dig and all of that, but Boston feels like it, like it, it really is um, under construction all the time. And the airport feels the same like the parking and the rental car area like it's just a disaster trying to navigate <laughs> because it's, it's all like torn up yeah i i i have a, like a a weird soft spot for it because of those those earlier benefits that i mentioned it's just it's not the airport that boston deserves i guess is the best way of putting it boston deserves a world-class airport because it's a world-class city and it just they don't really have that right now you landed at Terminal E because that's JetBlue's terminal. I think that Emirates also lands there because, you know, they have a partnership with JetBlue, actually. So. Actually, JetBlue got a Terminal C. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It was renovated 11 years ago. It just felt just really, really, really temporary. 
and small for the amount of flights that JetBlue, I mean, it's, it's a hub uh, city for JetBlue, but, but you're right to point out that Boston has a very solid international presence, which kind of reinforces my point about it deserves a better airport, like Cathay Fly there, BA, Virgin Atlantic, Virgin America for a while, Lufthansa, Emirates, Qatar Airways. Um, th- these are not, you know, small players. Hainan Airlines. No, it's a very big it's airport. A, like, it's yeah. 30, I think it's 35 million passengers a year. It's not a small airport. I mean, Boston is a big city, but it's a very important point. Yeah. This is why I'm surprised I haven't flown there in huh, since the early 90s. So my memories are really blurry about that airport. That's why I cannot comment. But I'm surprised that it's not a bit more, you know, the first impression of any city you go to usually is the airport. Mm-hmm. So I think that Boston should start a campaign for just a better airport because they deserve it. So do you think it's a good airport for layovers? Terminal C is not, but I can't speak <laughs> about the other terminal. Oh, you know what? Whatever terminal Virgin Atlantic flies out of, Terminal E. Yeah, no, I didn't have fun there. So, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but since it's close to the city, as you say, maybe it's better not to stay in the airport for the layover, but to actually go to exactly. the Exactly. Stay in that hotel with city. the great views out over the runway and you'll have a blast. Have a pint of Trillium beer if you can find it. And uh, you'll have a great time because Boston is a fantastic city. And watch Attaché Travel Guide about Boston. You'll learn what to do in Boston. And on that, Alex... Safe travels. Safe travels. We'll see you guys from different parts of the world next week. Actually, yeah, it will be an interesting one. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Bye, Alex. On behalf of layovers and the entire crew, we would like to thank you for joining us on this podcast today. And we're looking forward to seeing you on board again next week. Flight attendants, please prepare for landing.